Let's pray get the anointing of the Lord on. Father, we just pray for the Holy Spirit now to move in mightily as we look into your word. We pray for revelation knowledge to take place and just make our spirits and souls open to receive what the Spirit would say to us. Give us cognitive understanding that we can grasp what the Spirit is saying through this teaching. We give you praise for it in Jesus' name. Praise the Lord. I'm looking forward to this. This, uh, as was advertised, this is called the Feast of Israel and the New Covenant Church. Feasts of Israel and the New Covenant Church. I don't obviously know what kind of background, but those who will be listening to this uh, tape have. But it's one of the most wonderful cognitive pieces of word uh, correlation that I've ever heard in my own life. It's, it's really interwoven revelation from history past to present to history future. And hopefully you'll see that develop as we get into this. And another pod product of that is, is it, it moved upon me. I saw the magnitude of God, the magnitude of God. And we want to join the story of uh, the Feast of Israel in the New Covenant Church. We want to pick up the story where Israel is in Egypt. They're in Egypt. They've been there for 430 years, plus or minus, when the story starts to develop. And I was thinking about this as we looked into this, that that's 20 generations of people. And why it's so significant, as I correlated that and brought it into today's terms, we're about 20 generations of people since this country was founded, too. And as I look across what I see happening in the uh, social and political arena now, I see how far we've degraded from the original intent of the pilgrims and the uh, forefathers who came over to, to institute this country. Later people came for monetary gain, but they came seeking religious freedom. That was the difference between Jamestown uh, or, or Plymouth and Jamestown. It was, it was a, a, a gratification financial situation. But I was musing on that. I looked at that. We're, we're so far divorced from what this country was meant to be. And as we look at Israel in the scenario there in Egypt, they're starting to cry out for help. They're asking God for help, and a lot of it, that particular generation, I don't think they probably grasped what they were really asking for. I don't think they probably had too much correlation with their roots. I'm just kind of reading between the lines, but they were in bondage, obviously, and they were crying out to the Lord, but my, my thought is I looked and meditated on this, and I think the Lord started giving me some, some things to think about, is they were in bondage, but they were intolerable bondage in Egypt tolerable bondage because they, first of all, they were in the land of Goshen. Goshen is the uh, outflow where the Nile River starts in the south and flows to the north into the, into the Mediterranean. They were in the most fertile part of Egypt. It was in the Delta country where everything grows well. They had at their beck and call, even though they were in bondage, they had wonderful vegetables. They had, uh, they had fruits. They had cattle that they could, uh, for their usage. And, and they had fish out of the Mediterranean. So they had really, I hate to say a, a pretty good life, but they really did have a pretty good life there with that great abundance in their life because of Joseph. And his favor in the eyes of the, of the uh, Pharaoh in that land. And besides that, they had a, a wonderful allocation of labor. 
going for them at that particular time. The women would have been allocated, and I'm I'm, I'm reading, you know, in, into the, the, the scriptures don't say this, but I'm reading into it just by logic and what I've studied in, in past historical uh, civilizations. The women would have been tending the home and the children. They would have been doing some minor gardening. The, the, the older men would have been doing the heavy gardening, and they would have been doing the fishing and tending to the cattle because they had cattle, much cattle. And also the young men, now they would have been the laborers, those who could put forth the, the physical labor. And the thing is, I saw as I as I look back into the definition of the Hebrew that deals in this. True, the young men were there; all of them were under bondage. However, the young men were under the labor part of it. And as I looked up that word in in the original, they they were really being treated like animals. And they were being harassed all the time by by the Egyptians under constant harassment. And and we know that. You know, if you're in a place where your soul is being tormented all the time, it wears you down. If you're working in the secular workplace as you go through your daily chores, and we've all been there, uh, you, when you come out of the place, you're just physically drained if you're a Christian and you love the Lord and you love his work and you'll be around all of that. It's just draining. And uh, Dr. Violetta and I talk about that much of the time that a lot of people don't realize that when they go into the workplace uh, or even in family, I mean, we, we've dealt with this in family situations where uh, we would we would go into that environment for a while and, and the fa- bulk, bulk of the family in certain areas are, are of another faith. And uh, when we come away from there, there would be a, a, a tendency to be irritated. And, you know, you everything was kind of un, unpleasant. And quickly we realized that we were dealing with demonic activity, satanic activity, uh, with the un, you know, was war spirit, warfare in the spirit area. Just, and we were discerning of spirits. We were picking up on these things. So the, their taskmasters, really what that word equates to is harassers. Of course, they had physical bondage in the thing, but they also had mental bondage because the word means harassers. They were being constantly harassed. There's something about being in somebody else's territory that brings a harassment to the thing. And so Israel was was in this situation, had been there for about 40 plus years. And my thoughts were that, first of all, I'm, I'm of the opinion, the more I looked into it, that Israel should never have gone down into Egypt. Now, obviously, in the scripture, God said, all right, go down to Egypt because there was famine where he was. But they just came from the Fertile Crescent. In their tour down, which is, uh, you know, in that northwestern part of around Lebanon, and when they turned, they, they were in, in water, and they had vegetation. Where you have water, you have all types of fruits, and you have vegetables, and, and they came to that area. They could have easily gone back up, but they God sent him to the Canaan area, and Canaan doesn't necess, does not necessarily mean a, a geographical area, as it, it really lends itself to a people-oriented situation. The Canaanites is where they get the words. So when you look into the scriptures, that that's what they were dealing with. But God, you know, God sent them to Canaan. Sent them to Canaan, and uh, so they they had passed through that fertile area. So really, I know there was there was famine where they were, but they he said they went on. He went on down south into the Negev 
area of, of southern Israel. Now, down there, it is arid, and there it is uh, famineous. But to the north, it probably would have still, still been bad, and a lot of people didn't go to Egypt, and they survived the thing. So I, I really, in the back of my mind, think that God said, okay, go on down there. But, you know, there's a biblical truth that if we pester God enough for our will, there will come a time, and the Scripture says, he'll give us our desires, but it'll bring leanness. And, and maybe we've been there before, too. You know, God, I want this, and I want this. And he finally says, okay, go for it. You don't want my will? Your will be done. So they, they, I'm not sure that they need to be there, but whether they did or not, the obvious thing is that Joseph started falling from grace, and they had a time when they could have left, but they didn't. They didn't have to stay there. There was a time in that transition period when they could have left Egypt, but they chose to stay there because they had a lot of the goodies. And things kind of insidiously got worse and worse and worse until the point where they were under bondage and couldn't leave. Then the Egyptians began to fear them and said, no, we're going to keep you by force now. So at this point, they needed a deliverer. And this is some of the things I started seeing in this scripture was that there's so much of theology tied to this story as we look into the Feast of Israel and the New Covenant Church and how they are interwoven with each other. A lot of times we don't look at that as that way, but they are. They're very interwoven. And this is one of the blessings I think that we come through this teaching with. So they needed a deliverer. They could no longer deliver themselves. And I could, you know, we could expound on that for a long time. That's where we are. A lot of people are today. Most of the people are today. Praying God, we've taken advantage of that. And we're going to see that develop too. And they were crying out to God, oh God, I want you to get involved in this. Get involved in our deliverance. Come look at us and, and see what we're, what's happening to us. We need your help. But what they didn't realize was that God had already been involved for a long while. Things didn't slip up on the Lord. He knew about the situation from the very go. In fact, he knew about it before the very go. He knew about it before there was ever anything created. Nothing slips up on him. He knows the past, the present, and the future from before anything was ever created. He knows that. So Moses, developments had to happen. They were crying out to God, but in the foreknowledge of God, he had to raise up Moses. So Moses had to be born. Moses had to grow from babyhood through that transition into Pharaoh's house. He had to mature, and then he had to flee because of the killing of the Egyptian. He had to flee into Goshen, not Goshen, but the other area across Jordan, and be there for a long while, marry, have children. And then he had to hear God through the burning bush. And then he had to return under the edict of God to come back and to, to deliver the people. So God had been involved in the situation for a long, long while. And I think there's a story there for us today when we're desiring things to happen and sometimes they don't happen on our schedule. So God had to work out the series of events to uh, in, in time frame, which God is not limited by time. Sometimes, you know, we're, we're totally limited to time in one element and think about the future, but God's unlimited. He, he doesn't have to, he, he, he operates above and beyond time element. So God told Moses when he got ready to deal with the people and bring the people out of Egypt, he started giving Moses some revelation knowledge that they had never set before. He said, I am giving you a new calendar. 
Now, at this time of the, of the year when, when this would have, the story would have been coming to its culmination was the third year of the lunar calendar, which would there have been their time of the year, the third month in that. But God says, as of now, he talks about this in Genesis 12. He says, this month, which was the third month, is going to be the beginning of months for you. So he's now God is giving them a second calendar. They had a civil calendar, and now God is giving them a religious calendar. The, so the first month for the religious calendar was the third month of the lunar calendar. Okay, so that, that starts to be very interesting. So it's, it talks about to when, when, uh, God has fully done something. And I looked at this and I said, okay, when Israel deliverance day had fully come, there has to be a maturation process in anything we do with God. We just can't operate and do it well before it's time. It's like a pregnancy. A pregnancy is not supposed to happen at a certain time. Otherwise, it's too soon. It's too late. But the perfect time is a perfect time. And God has that in his plan, too. So when this is a parenthetical insertion. So when Israel day of deliverance finally came, God said to them in Exodus 12, he said, the 10th day of this first month, which is the third month of the lunar calendar, this first month, the 10th day, you're going to take a lamb without blemish. Now we can start to see the correlation. You're to take a, a lamb without blemish, and he says, and you're to keep it. That, that Hebrew word there, when it talks about keeping it, it talks about you need to, to take it into your home, which wasn't all that, you know, they, they, then that, they kept the, the cattle in their homes. That wasn't, that wasn't anything particularly new. So they lived with their cattle, but there, the, the, the content of that word keep it means you, you, you take it and you observe it because it has to be blemishless. Can't have a blemish on it, so you have to inspect it, and you've got to guard it, make sure that nothing happens to it. And it says, and then of the evening of the uh, of, of the uh, day of the fourteenth day, you keep it, take it on the tenth, and you and you keep it until the fourteenth, and you inspect it. And on the evening, which would be in the evening. Uh, it, it, we think of evening as being somewhere around six, seven o'clock when the sun's going down. No, but evening to them would be an average of about 3 p.m. And we know how that 3 p.m. starts to leap out at us, uh, in, in scripture, dealing with a lot of other things. We'll see some of that too. So it was about three o'clock, 3 p.m. in the afternoon in the evening. He said, then you will kill it. You're to kill that. But the word there kill is not murder. The word there kill means sacrifice. This will be your sacrifice. It's, it's, a, it's a word for slaying. And then he says you're going to roast it with fire. First of all, they would clean the inner out of it. And then they would, then they would roast the whole thing totally. So we later would see in another passage that God has a place for a, a burnt offering. There everything gets consumed. And that's a whole different study. But there he says here, this Passover lamb, you're to uh, roast it. And, and, the, and the way that they did that, they stretched it on a pole with its, with its feet outstretched, arms or front legs outstretched, and the bottom was down, and they opened it up and they roasted it. That's very significant, isn't it? Yeah, we see that play out later. And he says, then you're going to eat. All of it. 
And there again is, is deep connotation of revelation knowledge to how later on we're going to see that develop when we get to other facets of this. We have some things we have to eat all of to get the real thing out of it. And I'm, I don't want to get ahead of myself when I talk about that. So eat it all. And it says you need to eat it in haste. You need to eat it with bitter herbs. All of life is not pleasant. We have to be ready instant, in season. We have to eat it with our shoes on, with our journey ready to step out. And then we have to eat it, he says, eat it with your loins girded. Loins girded would have been a term that they use when they're working in the field or when they're ready for a quick journey where they have to run or they have to move quickly. But they would, they would bring their skirts up. Men wore the skirts just like the women. They would, they would bring their long robes up and they would tuck those into their, into their girded belt. And that would be, that would be called girding themselves. So all of that had to take place. Haste, bitter herbs, shoes on, girded, ready to go, ready to go. And then they would have to take the blood from that animal. This is part of that original uh, Passover. He says, you're going to take the blood. You put that on each side of the doors and the top of the threshold of their door. No, no blood on the, on the foot part of the door because we don't, the blood was never intended to be trampled on. So that, that was there. And then when we see Jesus, we see that same connotation later on. But I, there again, I don't want to get ahead of myself. He said, and when you do this, the death angels is going to come. And says, and when, then, I thought this was real. He said the death angel will come, and then he goes quickly to say, God is telling Moses, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. Hence, Passover. That's where they get the word. It's the blood. In their exodus trip out of Egypt toward their promised land, they could have gone by the easiest route, which would have been across the northern, northwestern part of this, what we know the Suez now, and could have gone up through Phoenicia area along the coast. Could have been there much, very, very quickly. But God said, no, they're not, I'm not taking them that way. When you get across the, uh, the, the Red Sea, then you, you're to go to the mountain, Sinai area. Sinai is really a mountain range. Although I'm sure there's a one that obviously one that God sent them to, but that was the range. He says, and uh, they're going to have to go through the wilderness, and we'll see that develop too. That after a move of God, sometimes things don't always turn out wonderfully, even though we're blessed of the Lord. But there's a wilderness experience that we have to go through for the thing to get burnt into us. And he said, the reason I don't want you to take them the easy way, but I want you to take Moses, take them through the hard way, the wilderness, it says, lest they want to return to Egypt. They start missing the dainties and the delicacies, and all of a sudden, the bondages didn't seem so real to them. Well, maybe I could put up with that. Let us go back there. God says, no, we can't let them go that way. I want you to lead them through the wilderness to the mountainous areas. I got things to do with them there. And the reason is that God's told Moses, uh, he didn't tell the people, he told Moses, I want you to take them the hard way because they're not, and I'm quoting, they're not ready yet to fight. 
they're not ready yet to fight. That's one of the reasons initially that he sent them that particular way. Because when they get to, to Sinai, a couple of things have to happen. First of all, they have to be given the law. He, they would get the law there, and then they, they would have to get the two tables of stone given to them on which the uh, commandments were written. And uh, it's, it's very interesting, it is, as we start seeing n- numbers in the Word of God and development of situations with God, the number two always is indicative of a testimony, witness and testimony. So they were going to get two things, a witness and a testimony for God. But, but, for for the law and the and the uh, and the uh, the two tablets of stone. When Israel's Passover feast was complete, when it would be complete, it would have three parts of it. I'm going to give you kind of an overview here, and then we'll kind of dissect it a little bit. When the Passover of Israel was complete, it would have three parts to the Passover, what we just designed in Passover, called Passover. It would have three parts to it. Passover proper, and then it would have the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and then it would have the Feast of Wave Sheet, which we equate to first fruits. So the first element, Passover, would God says it's going to be the first month, the 10th day, you take the lamb. On the 14th day, you sacrifice that lamb. The blood of that lamb guarantees a death Passover in your life. And he says, then no stranger can partake of it. That's biblical, right? That's a thread that runs right through the word. There's things for believers that the unsaved people can never, ever, ever have. There's things you can only partake of once you begin begin to be and become a child of God. It's when you can partake of a lot of things. And for 40 years, the only feast that Israel could celebrate was the, the, uh, the feast of Passover itself. That was the one that they celebrated for 40 years. And then for 1,200 more years, they could only keep the three parts of the Passover. Now, but the other two parts, they would have to wait until they got into their promised land. So all the time that they were in the elsewhere area for 40 years, all they could keep was the slaying of the lamb. But then when they, God says, when you get into the land, then I've got more for you. And he would institute the other two, the uh the unleavened bread, and the wave sheath of the first fruit. So there again, the first element of Passover, tenth, first month, 10th day, take a lamb, 14th day, sacrifice it, uh, and then that would guarantee the Passover. The second element, the unleavened bread, they did that in remembrance of their exodus. That's why they celebrated that, of their exodus. And that took place on the 15th day through the 21st day. It was a seven-day feast once they got into the promised land. And they, in that feast, unleavened bread, they had to get all of the leaven out of their house. Leaven just simply means something that puffs things up, causes it to rise. Now, when we bring that into New Testament terminology, we're going to understand what that has to do with puffing up, you know, swelling up, uh, rising up. Uh, and it says also in that day, he told them, you cannot do any laborious work. It's a day of rest and meditation. 
to, to the Lord. So no labors are permitted on that day. That would be the, those are the second element, the, uh, the feast of unleavened bread. The third element in the Passover was wave sheath or first fruits. In this, they took of the, when the, the har- harvest of barley would start to ripen, the first indication that it was ripened, the harvest was ripened, then they would take the first one that they indicated was ripe, and they would take those, sever those, bundle those, the two sheaves, and they would take those to the priest. They, uh, the priest would take those, and he would wave those because they are there remembering the receiving of the law. And the priest would wave those, and he would raise those, uh, uh, wave those to the north, to the south, to the east, and to the west. A lot of connotations in that one. That's the way he performed that. And that was indicated that the rest of the harvest would be blessed also because they had given the first fruits to God of their harvest of barley in that particular uh, feast. So I, I was musing on this, and I was thinking probably – uh, since God was so specific about the dates and the times and when you had to do these things, I mean, you couldn't celebrate Passover on the 13th day or the 14th day, and, and Israel was a nomadic people. And so I, I can just picture some Israelite saying, well, Lord, how, how are we supposed to know when to celebrate this thing if we don't have, you know, know when the days are? And God says, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking for the Lord. He said, don't worry about it. I, I've made it very simple. All you have to do is just wait until the first mo- full moon of spring. When it gets to be the first full moon of spring, that's your Passover day. And we'll see later on, when, when, if you can, when you see what the first Passover day is, you can just number the rest of the days thereafter, and, and it's, no, it's no problem keeping up with the rest of them. Very easy to do that. Of course, now we have all type of computers and everything to do it for us. But that was how simple that, that God could show them. He could take the heavens and, and reveal the heavens declare the glory of God, right, and the wonders of the Lord. So that's the way they could have found that out. And so this, this they did for 1,200 years, celebrating uh, the Passover for the first 40 years, and then for the next 1,200 years, when they got into the Promised Land, they could celebrate the other two parts, making the three parts of the Passover feast. So then came Jesus' incarnation. And Galatians 4 says this, When the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law. There again, perfect timing. John 1, where John the Baptist is is speaking, referring to Jesus as he sees him coming, he says, Behold the Lamb of God, using the article the, the one and only. Not a Lamb of God, not anything supposing, but he's saying, this is the Lamb of God. And every person in that river who was being baptized by John would have known immediately that he was referring back to all of the lambs and all of the animals that had been slain preparatory to getting to that day. And John was saying, this is the one. This is the Lamb of God. And in Matthew 23, Jesus is saying this. He says, oh, Jerusalem. How often I would have gathered thy children together. And he doesn't say, but you could not. He just said that you would not. 
They had an option to accept him because it would say later that he came to his own, his own received him not. So he's saying that to them. And then he would go on to say, because they would not accept him in John, uh, uh, in, in Matthew 23, rather. He says now, at, toward the end of his ministry, he says, behold, your house is now left unto you desolate. So in, in other words, they rejected him. He moved on and he opened the door for the Gentiles to come on in or whosoever will, whosoever will accept him. That's that desolate word there just simply means, uh, uh, it, it's, uh, it's lonesome or solitary. Uh, there, there's nothing there anymore. The, it's a beautiful edifice, but there's nothing there. It's a beautiful program, but there's nothing anointing there. It can be a, a beautiful group of people, but if there's no spirit there, and there again, we can look deeply into that if we want to take time to, to do that. Second Corinthians 3, it tells us that Israel's minds were blinded and that there was a veil over their face from the time he made that statement. Your house is left unto you desolate. That's been on there now for over 2,000 years. It's still, that veil is still over their, their heart that they can't understand. Matthew 26, Jesus says, this is my blood of the new covenant. He goes on to say, or in Hebrews 9, rather, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he, he entered once, once into the holy place. That means the most holy place where the, where the ark was and the, and the mercy seat was, not the outer court or the middle court. Having e- e- uh, obtained eternal salvation for us. He did that once. And, and I was thinking a lot of, uh, I, I do some reading in the scientific area and they talk about, uh, M versus, you know, multiple universes and all of this thing. And I said, no, that, that can't be. And I, I wouldn't waste my time with some of these scientists. Bible talks about sometimes they get so wise they become fools. No, God, God made one sacrifice for this world. There's no other ones out there. All the UFOs and things, uh, they can forget that as far as being from outer space. John 14, I will pray the Father when Jesus is getting ready to go back to, to heaven. He says, I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter. And then he goes on to say, give you another comforter. But he goes on to say, I will not leave you. I will come to you. So that kind of verifies to me the Trinitarian part of theology. He's going to send another comforter. Uh, obviously, we look into the Scripture, the comforter would be the Holy Spirit. And yes, yet Jesus says, I'm going to come to you. That's a wonderful piece of knowledge. So, in looking at Jesus' incarnational life, he celebrated these feasts also. In his life, he celebrated them. Jesus' personal celebration of Passover was that he was the Lamb of God. He was the Lamb. He was sacrificed by the Father on the cross. He was sacrificed on the first day, the 14th month of the day at 3 o'clock. That would have to follow right in line. Jesus' personal unleavened bread celebration would have been the first month, the 15th day. Now, he didn't have to celebrate the, the seven days of the feast as the Israelite under the Old Covenant. He, he just celebrated the one day and he passed on because he had, he had no leaven in him. 
So he didn't need to celebrate, but he needed to make a token appearance through it on the ways to fulfill the other feast because he, just like he didn't need to be baptized with John in Jordan. He said, I do it now because it's so fulfilled all grace and mercy. That's why you need to do it to me now. So there was no leaven in him because he goes on to John 6 to, to say that I am the bread of life. I'm the bread. Jesus' personal wave sheath or his first fruits, that would have taken place on the first day or the Sabbath, the first day after the Sabbath, which to us would have been our Sunday, the third day. It, it's interesting. A lot of people talk about it. And one time I, I thought, I thought along this line too, you know, we talked about he was in the graves three days and three nights. Well, when I started looking more deeply into the Hebrew uh, area of, of days and nights, any part of a Hebrew day counted as a full day. It could have been a full day. So uh, Jesus was crucified on a Friday. He uh, celebrated his first fruits or, or uh, his uh, wave sheet there on, uh, on, the, on the next day. And then he passed on through to, uh, to uh, John 2 there, where he says he raised himself from the dead on the third day. I thought that was very interesting when I read that. And I started thinking about some other scriptures. When he talks about on John 2, he raised himself from the dead. But Romans 8 says, if the spirit of him that raised Christ from the dead dwell in you, he shall also quicken to make, bring life to you of mortal bodies. So there, the spirit raised Jesus from the dead. But he goes on to say in 1 Thessalonians 1 that the father raised Jesus. He says, I will wait to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead. So there you have the Son raising himself, you have the Holy Spirit raising him, and then you have the Father raising him. But yet, in uh, 1 Thessalonians uh, 1, it talks about that the Holy Spirit, uh, that the God himself raised Jesus from the, from the dead. 1 Peter 1 says, if you, you were not redeemed by corruptible blood, but with the precious blood of Christ, as a lamb without blemish, God that raised him up from the dead. So all three of them raised him, raised him, and yet one God raised him from the dead also. I thought that was a, a wonderful, wonderful piece of correlational, revelational knowledge. And then uh, when he came out of the grave, he took, he raised himself, but also when he came out of the grave, he took captivity captive. Now, he, he took himself to heaven, and he also took the, uh, the captives to heaven. There again, two, two for testimony and evidence and witness. So I thought that was wonderful too. Jesus' last incarnation prophecy, you shall receive power that when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So he had celebrated his personal Passover in three parts. The 10 days Jesus remained on earth after his crucifixion, he spent 10 days of those. And then he told them, you're going to have to wait, and they waited 40 days for a total of 50 days until they were in the upper room. They didn't know what was going to happen, but Jesus was instituting a new feast for them. They, they had the first three, and now he was ready to, to institute the next feast for them. In John 1, it says, as many as received them, to him gave the power, that means the, the right, to become the son's children of God. Exodus 23 also says, it reminds the people that three times thou shalt keep a feast 
with me in the year. Now there, it's going to talk about a totality of the feast. We'll look at, there, there are three feasts broken down into seven parts. We've looked at three of them. And also, now we're getting ready to look at, uh, at the other one. Then the new covenant saints, the church, could begin to celebrate the feast. Once Jesus was gone, they, they had the, uh, they had the, the pre-feast that had gone that far, and now the church was ready to, to, for God to start doing another work. So now the church's Passover celebration feast, in Hebrews 9, it says, By his own blood he entered once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. And when the Father sees the blood, he passes over the individual. Galatians 2, I'm crucified with Christ, yet I live. Acts 2, the church of God, which he redeemed and purchased with his own blood. That would be the church's Passover, the church's unleavened bread celebration feast. First John 1, if, qualifier if, we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us. The word there in the Greek means to keep on cleansing us. If we'll confess our sins, he keeps on cleansing us from all unrighteousness. He doesn't do a partial job. When, when we accept his offer of redemption and salvation from sin, he does a complete job. He never remembers those anymore. And Colossians 3 says to put on the new man. We have to do that. We have to grow in God. We have to start entering into this unleavened bread, so getting, the, getting the leaven out of our life. It's not just a one-time shot with a new covenant people, the church. It's a progressive thing. As soon as we recognize that, that there's a, a, a vision, a separation between us, us and God, we need to get that cleaned up and satisfied underneath the blood where God will never remember that anymore. Repentance for it. And we have to do that. Put on the new man. And Romans 12 says, be not conformed to this world. Don't be conformed to this world, he says, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And we've probably all heard this connotation. I thought this was wonderful the first time I ever heard it. I don't remember where I heard it now from some other minister. I'm sure the word transformed is the word metamorphosed. And the great analogy, I've never heard a better one that they gave for that metamorphosis, which means to, to uh, renew your mind, was, was when a caterpillar, as ugly as they are, when they go through the metamorphosis, out comes a beautiful butterfly. And I thought, I've never been able to elaborate any better on that one than use that analogy, and I've used it so many times before. So that would be the church's Passover, the church's wave sheath uh, that we talked about, the first uh, unleavened bread, be not conformed. The church's wave sheath or first fruit celebration. This is where it talks about in him, Acts 17, we live and move and have our being. Now, that's just not three separate statements. That's one statement that builds on another one that builds on another so we can have all of these things happening in our life at the same time. And we feel that energizing of the Holy Spirit. We're living in him. We're moving in him. We're having our being in him. And we grow in the Lord. And the more we grow, the more we uh, uh, energize by him in having our being and moving in the Holy Spirit. Matthew 7 says, You shall know them by their fruits. These are first fruits of the Christian. Somebody tells me that they're a Christian and they don't have any fruit short in their life. I said, there's something wrong with you. There's something wrong someplace. You don't, I don't think you have what you claim to have. And say, well, you're not supposed to judge me. Yes, I am. 
Yes, I am. God gives me that right. I can't judge a heart, but I can judge fruits. I can judge fruits. The fact is, we better judge fruits nowadays because there's so many charlatans out there. There are so many, like the old saying, so many foxes in the hen house. There's so many people in this thing for the money and for the power and the visibility and their personal glory. And how many times have we looked at somebody and, and all of a sudden the Spirit says, there's something wrong. There's something wrong there. I don't, I don't get a witness from that. God says, yeah, that's right. You shouldn't. That's not right. Romans 6 says we are raised to walk in newness of life. That's what we say at the, at the baptismal service. They're buried with him in baptism. We're supposed to be raised. The next thing we do when, when we come out of the water is to walk in newness of life. When we come out of our death's identity with Christ, we should never come out of there to be the same anymore. We should walk in newness of life. Things should start falling away. Obviously, we're not, we don't go in there, a, a dirty person to come up, you know, spouting scripture. We have to grow in the Lord. But that's a wonderful thing, too. That's a wonderful thing to grow in God. And my prayer is that, that, I, that I never cease growing in God. Because I find that the more I learn about him, the more revelation knowledge he gives me, the more hunger I have for it. And the more hunger, the more he satisfies, and the more hunger comes. Isn't, isn't it wonderful when God, the, the Holy Spirit, does that for you? And Romans 11 says this wonderful thing, says, if the first fruit be holy, then the whole lump is holy. Hey, it's not my work, it's his work. I'm just partakers of him because I was crucified with him. Every believer, true believer, is. And in John 20, Jesus is speaking, he says, as my Father has sent me, even so send I you. I'm sending you not to just sit in some dead place. Once a week, I'm not just sending you to be a closet anything. I'm sending you to do what Israel couldn't do to fight. I'm sending you to go forth with authority, not, not braggadocious ridiculousness. I've seen some of those too with people who are supposed to have a name, but we're to go through in, in, in forceful authority, exerting the forces of God into our environment not for our glory, but for his glory. We're to go forth doing miracles. If we, do, if we don't do but one miracle to somebody in their whole life, we've satisfied it. If we do one an hour, we've satisfied it, because no matter which end of the spectrum, it all glory goes to God. And I, I'm, I'm fully convinced when we start applying the Scriptures, and I know how it happened in my life, the knees shook, you know, when the first time you wanted to lay hands on somebody or witness to somebody when, uh, you know, the knees shook and you thought, oh, I don't know if I can do that or not. But uh, you did it and, and you saw God perform a miracle. First of all, you, all of a sudden you were, you were jumping up and down inside. You were doing spiritual goosebumps inside of you. And besides that, nobody could ever tell you that miracles were not for today. Once I saw the first person heal by laying on of my hands, nobody could tell me that healing was there. The first time I cast out a demon and saw somebody become free in, in, in their right mind, nobody could tell me that demonic attacks were not real. First time you share with somebody and, and you see God do a miraculous work and you go forth in authority in, in the face of opposition, I found out that Satan is a liar, a particular liar. He'll tell you all the time, you know, that uh, 
If you show any authority, people are going to reject that. If, if you ask somebody if you can lay hands on them and pray for them, he, they're going to reject that. I could count on one hand the people I've ever offered to lay hands on or pray for in, in, when they had a need who, who said no. And I'd have fingers left over. Most of the people say, yeah, you know, go ahead. You know, if you're hurting, you take what's available. They may not believe. I've laid hands and prayed for guys in the Walmart parking lot before, you know, and anywhere God feel that witness, I don't carry a spiritual soapbox around with me. I don't want to be a, a you know, ridiculous, uh, asinine person about the thing, but I do believe that when we're instant in season, God opens opportunity, and the more we walk out on that, the more we expound on that, the more opportunity God puts in our place, and the more we're just humbled by the awesomeness of God as he works through us. Would would go and be instant in and out of season? I, I think that just simply means whether you feel like you're anointed or not. Just, you know, if, if the opportunity does it, Give it a shot. See what happens in the thing. So now the church was ready for the next feast, which nobody knew. This would be called the Feast of Weeks or what we call Pentecost. They didn't know what Pentecost. They didn't know what was coming. When they were all in one place in one accord in the upper room, they didn't know what was going to happen. They were just told to go and tarry. And when the 50 days, Pentecost means 50, when the 50 days, 10 days of Jesus, the 40 days since his, you know, since his uh, resurrection, 50 days, they were in one place. Some were not there, you know, only 120 were there, 380 was someplace else. And I've heard people down, you know, cast the other people away. No, they, you know, they, I think he had the 120 that he wanted there. Other people could maybe couldn't. Maybe they had to be working. Maybe they had to be tending their home. Maybe they were fighting illness or something. But there was 120 there. And I don't think that is an insignificant figure because the life of man, God says, is going to be 120 under the, under the overall covering of God. Now we're reduced now to 70, perhaps 80. But I, I think it gives us latitude that I believe God will give you what you want. I believe the indication is there that, that he'll give you what you want. If you want more time, he, he's, he's on record of doing that in the past. But, you know, just between me and you, I'm not sure how much time I want in this junk <laughs> anymore. <laughs> as far as we talked about a while ago, as far as we're getting away from, from our roots, and I see young people out there today, you know, when they do the man-on-the-street interviews, they don't even know where they are. They don't know why they're doing things. They're just caught up in the moment, and they're doing what somebody else told them. They're like a bunch of sheep being led to the slaughter. So Jesus was, or God was about to bring in the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost, and there again it was on the 50th day after the Passover celebration, the next, uh, next feast. For the Old Testament, Testament, uh, Testament saints, they had to wait the, the 50 days. They, you know, after that to, for, for God to do that kind of work. We, who, when they started celebrating the, the Pentecost in the upper room, they could celebrate that immediately. We don't have to wait 50 days. Immediately after salvation, once a person becomes saved, they can, they can go through this feast of, uh, of Pentecost. They can do that. Now, 
from past experience as a minister, I, you don't see that happen very often in my ministry. I don't know that I've ever seen it happen, salvation one minute and, and filled with the Spirit the next. I'm not saying it could happen. I mean, the, the, the Word allows that. I've just never seen it happen that quickly. I've seen most of the people who were saved for a while before they did. Some people were saved for years, many years in a lot of cases, before they were filled with the, with the uh uh, go, go, go through the Pentecost celebration. But it was on the 50th days after, after Pentecost, but we can celebrate it now. And the sign that that has happened, and this is the one that a lot of the religious people today fight, the sign that that had happened was the same sign that they had in the upper room. It was glossolalia. It was a tongue. They, they had tongues. And when that happened, when the Feast of Pentecost happens in a Christian's life, God gives them a prayer language. And it depends on how much they exercise that. Sometimes it's one or two words. Sometimes it's almost fluid. And I equate it to the to a baby. You know, the first word is <laughs> I hadn't thought about this until just right now. But you know the first sound the baby makes? They they say, I ah and what that really is, that's the name of God. The name of God is four consonants and a vowel. It's the tetragrammaton, and the word there is ayah. I hear, I. So the first sound that a baby makes is calling God's name. Isn't that unique? That's something, isn't it? So the first sign that we have gone through that experience, we God gives us a personal prayer language, a closet prayer language. Now, some people say, oh, you're not supposed to use that in the sanctuary, you know. You're not supposed to use it in, in the presence of anybody else. I, I use it whenever I want to. It's not it's nobody else's business. It's me and God. You say, well, that needs an interpretation. No, it doesn't. And if that's a tongue for the congregation, then it requires an interpretation. But it's my prayer language. I can sing in the Spirit. I can sing hymns in the Spirit. I can sing praise in the Spirit. I can talk to God in the Spirit. And I can shut out the devil. I can shut out anybody else. The fact is, I don't even know what I'm talking about unless I ask God to give me a revelation for it, which he'll do. And we're supposed to do that. And, and I hate to confess it, but I'm delinquent about that a lot. Praying in the Spirit because... It's one of the most blessed things that we can do to keep ourselves built up in the Lord. And a lot of people fight it, and I don't have to wonder why. I know that Satan is the, would never want that to happen because when that happens, we, we turn into a viable force. It, it, it didn't, salvation in, in, in the, uh, in Jesus' ministry, to me, he offered salvation, not, not in the upper room, but he offered that when he, said, when he breathed on us and said, receive the Holy Spirit. That's when I believed that the salvation promise came in for, for whosoever will. In the upper room, the church, and we, church is a new, covenant, new testament word. It's not, it's not past and it's not going to be future. We are the church for this period of time. So when, uh, when they were in the upper room, I think that's when the, those 120 went through that, which was indicative of, of all of mankind. Man's time's day will be 120 years. I think that was just a, a hyperbole for those who will do that will be endued with power, power. And when, and when we have that, something happens to us when we go through that experience, that feast of Pentecost. There's something that happens in us that wasn't there before when we go through that. Yes, yes, glossolalia is a sign that that has happened. That's the tongues. God gives us a prayer language. And also then, 
I believe he also gives us the ability to operate in, because then we have a power and authority and, and the willingness and the, and the audacity in the spirit to go forth and do things. And I think then we become a, we become a viable force for God. We don't worry too much about what people think about us anymore. If we, if we feel a witness to minister to a situation, <laughs> I could, I, I could tell some stories, but I rather not take time to do that. But it's, it's just a whole different ball game, so to speak, when that happens in the life. Now, these were the feasts that have been fulfilled totally up to this point. These are available in, in original, in transition, and in fact for us now, but yet there's a, let me recap. We had a feast of Passover, which was Passover proper, the lamb, unleavened bread and first fruits. Then we, now we have the feast of Pentecost. That has been satisfied. And now God says, okay, I've got, still got more for you. And some of this is future, and it's going to be the Feast of Tabernacles. And there again, Tabernacles has three parts. So mainly we have three feasts. We have Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. But the first feast, uh, uh, Passover, breaks down into three parts. Pentecost stands alone, and now the Feast of Tabernacles is going to have three parts for a total of seven, but in the capsule of three. Did I hope you're with me? Okay. But... The coming feasts are going to be the Feast of Tabernacle. have three parts. It's going to be the Feast of Trumpets, the Great Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles itself, from which the other two get, uh, it takes on the connotation of the the, uh, other two, making it a total of three. The Feast, the Church's Feast of Trumpets, I believe that we're in, the Church is in the Feast of Trumpets right now. I think we have been for a long time. The Feast of Trumpets. Once we get, once we go through the celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles, I, I really don't think those who haven't gone through that are in that. They may have to wait. I don't think because I, I firmly believe from looking into these in, in diligence. I believe you have to. You need to go through these to get ready for the next one. You can't, you can't go to the Feast of Tabernacles before you, or you can't go to, let me break it down. You can't go to the, the Feast of First, uh, of uh, Unleavened Bread until you get the lamb slain in your life. You can't do, uh, the, uh, the Feast of, uh, of, uh, First Fruits until you have the Unleavened Bread out of your life. And that's present and it's also progressive. We can't do the Feast of Pentecost until we get Passover out of our way in its totality. So there's a progressiveness in that. That's the way I teach it. I think that's where the church, a lot of the church right now is stuck in the first feast. And they're trying to, they're, actually, they, they got the lamb slain in their life, but they, they're, they're having trouble getting the leaven out of their life, and they don't have any fruit. And most of the church has not gone through the feast of Pentecost, and, and they'll almost fight you literally for their right not to go through it. And we know what we know the benefit of that to him. We're saying, please come on, look into it. Let me make a provocative statement. I believe any pastor that doesn't teach the the feast of all these feasts, the Pentecost especially, and that tongues are not for today. And, and they look at the tongue. It's not the tongue. That's the sign. It's the it's the Pentecost. That's the problem. And I believe any pastor who does not teach that is going to have to stand before God at the bema and answer for it. And uh, anyone, any pastor who stands there and tells it it's a Satan, I, like my mother used to say, I wouldn't be in their shoes for their uh, in their shoes for their socks. 
That's a dangerous, dangerous position to account the things of God to Satan. And my thoughts are, I've said, I've said this to people before. If you don't believe in it as a pastor, then you, you can, you still, you need to teach it so you'll be clear. You don't have to accept it's a personal thing, but you need to at least let your people know that it's valid. So those are the three parts, the, the Feast of Trumpets, Tabernacles has the Feast of Trumpets, Atonement, Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles itself. So the Feast of Trumpets, as I said, I believe that the church is in the Feast of Trumpets right now, because some of the things that the Feast of Trumpets uh, does, some of the increments of it is that it tells us who, who are in that, that we are to gather like believers like believers, not just believers. I think I'm encouraging and, and gather together believers. And, and my, my definition of that is spirit-filled believers. Amos 3.3, 3, we quoted this. I think we were talking about it the other day. How can two walk together except they be agreed? I can fellowship with anybody who's a, who's a blood-bought, card-carrying Christian. I can, sell, I can fellowship with them for a given time, but there comes a time when I have to get away from them and let my spirit get built up because when I'm with that kind of an element, even though they're brothers in Christ, they drain me. When I'm around another spirit-filled person, I'm edified because I'm tapping into their spirit and their enthusiasm. They're feeding me, and I'm feeding them, and we're having a wonderful time. That's why I like full gospel churches. That's why I want to be a part of one. And if 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 I've, I've left churches, I'm not saying something that hadn't happened to me. I've left churches because uh, I moved in that experience, and they I knew that if I if I stayed. And I stayed as long as I could because I was deeply involved in, in leadership and I had to leave, but peaceably. I knew they would never go with me, so it took me about a year to extricate myself from it, but I knew I had to leave before they gave me the right foot of fellowship and I didn't want to cause any problems, so they just came and tied me to back on out and move on. So, the Feast of Trumpets, I believe we're in that. We're there to gather like believers. We're to recognize true leaders, and I think that's one of the problems that the churches aren't doing now. The, the members, they can't recognize an ungodly, worldly leader. Of course, they're all ungodly if they don't know the Lord. I don't care how wise they purport to be. They're not smart at all if they don't know the Lord. And I think we've evidenced some of the decisions we've seen coming out of our leaders, you know, federal, state, and local uh, in the last few years, especially the last few years. We've seen some tremendously terrible decisions come out of there. But we're to, and especially in the church, we need to be able to recognize true men and women of God, leaders in the church. And we're supposed to be discernible enough to recognize those things. And I hate to say it, but most of the church is not. They're not discernible enough to recognize that quality. We're to warn people of the times. And I'm, I'm quoting scripture now. I'm not, this is just something I pulled out. Uh, this is what the trumpet, the feast of trumpets did in Israel. And I'm just bringing that up, up to date in 21st century terminology. We're to warn people and people don't want to be warned. They don't like to be, uh, you know, verbally chastised. They don't like to be saying, hey, that's not right. I told somebody not long ago, a young minister called me, and uh, he asked me what I thought about tithing, uh, and he was having a problem with a tither, and I said, well, brother, I don't, I don't uh, uh, consent to tithing being a New Testament 
obligation on people. I said, the tithe was for Israel. We're, we're, you know, we're not under the tithe. We're under giving, the principle of giving. But uh, there's ways that we give to God. I said, but I, I don't teach tithing. And then I was thinking, I, I could feel this, you know, his spiritual countenance change over the phone. And uh, I was thinking, it's amazing how, how smart people think you are till you disagree with them. But then, so we are to warn people of the times. I, I, I'm, we're involved in our, our personal family life about trying to warn people about the ramifications of, of the upcoming current events and how we have to be on the right side as much as we can. I know I was watching some of the political candidates in the Republican Party, and they were all, yeah, they were spouting scripture, and all of a sudden, uh, for, for you know, weeks and months, how how. Religious, they were in courting the, the Christians, and all of a sudden something happened in the one candidate's life, and, and he put out a, a real good cuss word, you know. And I thought, okay, yeah, I got you. I understand. Yeah. So we're to warn people. And not only that, but one of the things that God didn't let Israel go the easy way because they wasn't ready for war. And one of the things in the Feast of Trumpets that I think the church is in, now Israel's not in it yet, the church is under, the, I believe, the, 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 the Feast of Trumpets because we have to contend for the faith that was once delivered to the church. That's part of our commission that we have to, when we see issues that, that's wrong, we have to stand up for that. We can't bite our lip. Now, there, there's times to fight and there's times not to fight, okay? I, I, I admit that. But we'll know. We'll know that. But I do not believe any Christian is called to be a timid rose, blushing rose on the side and never say anything to anybody. And I, I got some people right now that I'm encouraging to the, the, uh, the environment that they walk in and the people that they deal with. I said, hey, not only do you have a, a, uh, a right to state your opinion if they state theirs, but I said, you have an edict of God to warn the people in love. I don't think you have to grab them by the lapels, you know, and shake them or anything, but I think you have an obligation to, to contend for the faith. Because we don't want to see anybody go to hell. We don't want to see anybody move in there. When your spirit feels, you get words that other people don't get. You hear things from God that other people don't hear, and I feel the Spirit of God stirring me right now that we have to warn the people. They don't want to be warned. People don't want to, they, they don't want to be held accountable. Nobody wants to be held accountable. It's always said, he did it. Well, she did. Does that sound kind of like Adam, doesn't it? This woman? Yeah. First Thessalonians 4, the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout. The shouts are going to be come up hither. With the voice of the archangel, Gabriel, he's clearing the way for the Lord. He's clearing the heavenlies. Although it's, that's really a hyperbole because it's going to, you know, God's not going to really need any clears. That's just a type, a hyperbole in the spirit. The dead in Christ shall rise first, and we which are alive and remain shall be caught up. That means snatched away in the twinkling of an eye. In fact, is the word there is atom. That means it, it happens so quickly in a time frame that you can't divide the time. We're going to be gone before our clothes fall to the floor. So that's why we need to be ready, have our bags packed in haste, shoes on our feet. You know what happened to Israel when they got ready to go? We need to be ready to go. Call it, call it having your bags packed if you want to. Be ready for the, be ready for the journey because we're not going to have to say, oh, Lord. You know, it won't have time to say, oh, Lord. It, it'll be accomplished fact. 
to meet the Lord in the clouds. Now, that's not, that's not the vapor things that hangs around the earth. That just means the cloud of witnesses that God is going to be bringing with him. Does that mean if somebody is in a place in the desert where they have no clouds, they can't go? No. Everybody, no, it's just a cloud of witnesses that he's going to bring with him when he says that. To, now, he's not coming to earth, and he's coming to the earth, and we're going to go up to meet him in the air. And then it goes on with wonderful words. When that happens, the word snatched away, it says, so shall we ever, means always be with the Lord. Always be with the Lord. Oh, I tell you, I think about that. The older I get, there's a couple of pains, you know, and twitches and things that don't quite function like you two and things that used to be north have kind of dripped down to the south, you know. <laughs> it's it's not, a very, not a very wonderful feeling, but praise the Lord. One day, I was in a I was in a place of business not long ago, and there was an older man and his wife sitting there, and somebody, the woman, was talking to me about uh, a hearing thing, and I said, "Well, I don't worry about. It. I'm going to very soon now. I'm going to get a, a whole new body. I won't, I won't have to worry with any any hearing problems. Won't need these things anymore. I've been standing on healing for these things for about fifty years now. Won't have any more bumps and grinds and aches and pains and twitches and aches." So shall we ever always be with the Lord. And this is going to happen. The Feast of Trumpets has different trumpets. And this is going to happen at the last trump. This will be a prolonged, twirling uh, blast of the trumpet when, when this, this event happens in, in an instant, in a twinkling of an eye. And this is the rapture of the church, leaving this place, rapture leaving. And I believe that this triggers the clock of Israel to once again become the dominant force in the world. We see, we see the birth pangs of it now. I, I made this statement when I probably four or five years ago, I was ministering in a full gospel church. And in the course of the message preaching session, I, I made the comment that uh, since 1948, the primary emphasis, the birth pains have started shifting from the West back to Israel. Of course, I don't, the pastor, I looked there, I happened to be glancing at him and I saw him roll his head and evidently he didn't believe in that, you know, but the emphasis has started moving back. And as soon as the church is gone, the total emphasis is going to be on Israel. We, we see that building now. We, we tried to address that uh, two or three months ago when, when we preached on uh, Armageddon in World War Three or World War Three in Armageddon, if, if any of you sat in on that teaching, uh, of the things that are going to happen as we see the prelude of those happening now. So the, the church is gone, and Israel begins to celebrate their Feast of Trumpets. It's going to happen on the seventh month of the religious calendar, the first day through the ninth day will be the Feast of Trumpets for Israel. On the great day of, of atonement, Jesus returns physically, stands on the Mount of Olives, and things happen there. He returns with the heavenly saints, and all unrighteous ones are going to be instantly slain by his coming. The literal Great Day of Atonement happens on the seventh month, the tenth day. There, then Jesus returns, as I said. The unrighteous are slain, and then that ushers in the literal Feast of Tabernacles. And it begins to be celebrated worldwide. The Jews came out of their dwelling, and they dwelt in, in, in temporary dwellings. 
in the uh, in in the in the in the promised land, they they still do that. They say that's the way they still celebrate it. When when we uh, are here, we're we're not we're not of this world. We're sojourners here, but there, we're kind of in temporary quarters right now. But then we're going to go to our heavenly quarters. I've gone to a player place for you. Where am I coming to receive to myself? In in my in the heavens there are many mansions. Well, that doesn't mean big houses with columns. No, that just means a dwelling place of the Lord. It's going to be comfortable and wonderful to us. When the that literal feast of tabernacles celebrated worldwide, and that Jesus is going to be King of Kings. He'll be sitting on the throne in Jerusalem. He'll be King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's going to be on his vesture when he comes back that time. The hundred uh, the the the. Uh, 144,000 uh, Jews will start their, their ministry. The Old Testament saints will take care of the feast of the, the tabernacle of the uh, temple affairs. David will sit on the, the throne ruling Israel. And we of the new covenant will be raised and will be ruling world affairs under Christ. What an exciting time. These feasts, uh, when when I started getting these into my spirit, it it just it just filled in so many blanks, and I see how God interweaves all of these things into such a fantastic tapestry of events as we move through these, and we've moved through all of them except the literal coming of the Lord. Israel has to go through some of theirs, and theirs are going to be kind of horrendous. When they get into their uh, Feast of Trumpets, they're going to have to lose a lot of people. They're going to have to go through hard times. In fact, if we were, when we were in Israel, uh, I had occasion to mention that to one of the people who was with us. I said, I think we're having a dinner on the last night, and we were talking about Israel, and I said, well, Israel's going to be a, a wonderful, wonderful place. And I said, in the meet, before it gets there, it's going to have to go through some hard times. I don't know if he grasped about it or not. So as we bring this to conclusion, Matthew 25 talks about the kingdom of heaven is like five wise and five foolish virgins. The five uh, wise and the five fo- foolish, the, the problem with oil, either had or lack of oil was the catalyst that, that was the problem. The five foolish had to go searching for it, and we we could apply that in today. Although that's a that's a, a tabernacle uh, term, which really people try to preach the the five, five wise and five foolish, and I've heard the preachers about it every way. But that's really a uh, a future uh, teaching for the for the bridegroom. So oil was the problem, and we see that today. All right now, all indicate indicate indicative rather of the Holy Spirit. That's the problem with with uh, the world in general. It's the problem with unsaved people. They don't have oil. It's the problem with other Christians. They don't have oil in their lamps. They got a lamp. They don't have any oil. And it's for those of us who have oil, and we're expecting the bridegroom to come. We're we're watching and we're praying and we're staying prayed up. We're staying repented up. We're moving on with God as He He leads and directs us. We're waiting for the bridegroom, and while. They went to search for all the five foolish, the bridegroom came, and, and then a pathetic statement that just troubles every soul. It says, and then the door was shut. 
when, when Noah climbed into the ark, he was in there for seven days and the rains came and the door was shut. They couldn't get in there. And I, I've, I've heard of that. I've heard that scenario in my spirit and in my soul so much. I could hear the clawing on the sides of the ark, the fingernails, you know, trying to, as the waters rose and they tried to get in slowly, the, the fingers, you know, and then there was silence. When we're gone, that door shut, it's going to be hell on earth. Terrible times are involved. We know about some of those. So my last thought about this is to be a provocative, progressive Christian disciple, I believe one must. And the qualifier would be you need to, they need to celebrate every feast if they're going to be a progressive Christian that is available to them. And we have every feast except the, the, the great day of atonement as believers. Israel's got to go through part of their trumpets, but I believe we're in that now. And that's all we're waiting for. It's a day of atonement. And I can insert here, uh, uh, I believe that's going to happen on the seventh month, the 10th the day of the seventh month. I think it's going to happen at nine o'clock in the morning. I'm not, I'm not saying that exactly, but you see, he just says we don't know the, the day and the hour. We can know the time, you know, the, in, in general. I don't know which one it's going to be, but I believe it's going to happen that time. That's just my, my thought. I'm not pressing that on you. Well, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Would you just let's stand then and I'm going to ask Dr. Powell to please dismiss us.